You are listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year, I'm reading and reflecting on this four-volume, over 2,500-page work by the Venerable Maria of Agreda. And if you would like to discuss it with others who are following along, join the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast group on Facebook, and there you can interact with other readers and listeners. Today is Day 72, and we are reading from Book 2, Chapter 14, Paragraphs 623 to 630. Most Holy Mary's Clear Vision of the Divinity. 623. The highest and most excellent of all her visions were those of the beatific vision of the Divine Essence, for in her state of pilgrimage she many times enjoyed the unveiled vision of the Divinity. I shall mention all these visions in the course of this history according to the time and occasion in which she enjoyed the supreme privilege of a creature. Some doctors are in doubt whether the other saints have reached this state of seeing the Godhead clearly and intuitively, while yet in mortal flesh. But whatever may be their uncertainty about such visions in regard to other saints, no such doubt can be entertained in regard to the Queen of Heaven, and it would be an injury to her if we were to measure her favors with the common measure of the saints. Many more favors and graces than were ever possible in them actually were consummated in the Mother of Grace. And it is at least possible that the beatific vision can take place in men, yet in their pilgrimage, whatever may be the mode in which this happens. The first requisite of a soul, which is to see God face to face, is a degree of sanctifying grace most exalted and far above the ordinary. Now the degree of sanctifying grace which Mary reached from the first moment of her existence was superabundant and of such perfection that it exceeded that of the highest seraphim. In addition to sanctifying grace, there must be great purity of all the faculties without a shadow of guilt or the least inclination to sin. Just as a vessel which has contained any impure liquid and which is to be filled with another pure substance must be cleansed, washed, and purified, until not a taste or odor of the former remains, so as not to infect their new substance. So all traces of sin, and much more actual sin, contaminate and infect the soul. And because all these effects make the soul unfit for the divine bounty, it must be prepared before it can be united with God by the intuitive vision and beautifying love. It must be cleansed and purified so that not a vestige of the odor or the taste of sin remains, nor any traces of vicious habits or inclinations consequent thereon. This applies not only to the effects and stains of mortal, but also of venial sin, all of which cause in the soul a special turpitude like to that which, according to our way of understanding, such things ensues, when a foul breath covers and obscures the clearness of crystal. All its brightness and purity must first be restored to the soul before it can see God face to face. 6.24 Moreover, besides this purity, which is, as it were, the negative cleansing of the nature of him who is to enjoy the vision of God, it is necessary to cauterize the infection of original sin, so that it may entirely be extinct and neutralized, as if it had never existed in the creature. Thus all trace or inward cause inclining it to any sin or imperfection must first be done away with, and the entire free will must, as it were, be made incapable of everything, which in any way is opposed to the highest sanctity and goodness. Hence, on account of what I shall mention afterward, it will be easily understood how difficult it is for the soul to attain the necessary condition for the clear vision of God in mortal flesh, 
and that it can be conceded to the creatures only with great circumspection, for most important reasons and after great preparation. According to my understanding, there are two kinds of incongruities and divergences of the sinful creature in regard to the divine nature. The first consists in this, that God is invisible, infinite, a pure and simple act, while man is a corporeal, earthly, corruptible, and coarse substance. The other incongruity is caused by sin, which is immensely distant from the divine goodness, and this entails a greater divergence and alienation than the first. But both of them must be done away with before such extremes can be united, and before the creatures can rest in the supreme manner of the deity, and before it can assimilate itself with God, so as to see and enjoy him as he is. 1 John 3 2. 6.25. All the requisites of immaculate purity and transparency, excluding all sin and imperfection, were possessed by the Queen of Heaven, in a much higher degree than even by the angels. For she was touched neither by original nor by actual sin, nor by any of the consequences. In this regard, divine grace acted more powerfully in her than was merited by the impeccable nature of the angels, and in Mary there was no disproportion nor any obstacle of sin which could retard the vision of God. On the other hand, besides being immaculate, the grace given to her in the first instance exceeded that of the angels and saints, and her merits were in proportion to that grace. By her first act she merited more than all the others, even by their most perfect and consummate acts, which they have performed in order to reach beatific vision. Therefore, if it is just that in the other saints the reward of glory merited by them be deferred until the end of their mortal life, it does not seem against justice that this law was not followed so strictly in regard to Most Holy Mary, that the Most High Ruler should and really did proceed differently with her during her mortal existence. The Most Blessed Trinity would not suffer such a long delay in regard to her, and manifested itself to her many times, since she merited it above all the angels, seraphim, and saints, who have less grace and merits, are enjoying the supreme beatitude. Moreover, there is another reason why the divinity should manifest itself clearly to her. Namely, since she was elected to be the mother of God, it was appropriate that she should know by fruition and experience the treasure of the infinite deity and see him face to face as her God, whom having enjoyed, she was to clothe in mortal flesh, and bear about in her virginal womb, and whom she was afterwards to treat as the Son, and as her God. 6.26 Even with all the aforesaid purity and sinlessness, and with the addition of sanctifying grace, the soul is not yet worthy or capable of the beatific vision, since still other dispositions and divine operations are required. With these the Queen of Heaven was furnished whenever she enjoyed this vision, and hence they are much more necessary to any other soul, that is to be thus favored in mortal flesh. After the soul has reached the state of purity and sanctification above described, the Lord adds a finishing touch as of a most spiritual fire, which refines and chases it as a fire does the gold, whereas Isaiah was purified by the seraphim. Isaiah 6-7 It has two effects in the soul. First, it spiritualizes and separates in it, according to our mode of understanding. The dross and earthliness connected with its present existence and its union with the bodily matter. Secondly, it fills the soul with a new light, which scatters. I do not know what obscurity and darkness, just as the light of the morning scatters the darkness of night. This light takes possession, leaves the soul clarified and replenished with new splendors of a divine fire, 
producing still other effects in the soul. For if it is guilty or has been guilty of any sins, the soul deplores these sins with incomparable sorrow and contrition, with a sorrow that cannot be equaled by any other human sorrow, for all are very little in comparison with it. At the same time, it feels another effect of this light. It purges the understanding of all the images impressed upon it by the sensible and visible things of earth. For all impressions and images acquired by the senses distort the intellectual vision serve only as a hindrance to the clear vision of the supreme spiritual essence of God. Therefore, it is necessary to clear and evacuate from the faculties of these earthly idols and images. Not only is this necessary in order that the soul may see God clearly and intuitively, but equally so in order to see him abstractively. 6.27 In the soul of our most pure queen there is no fault to deplore, no after-effects of the sensible operations, no dependence upon the body. And therefore these illuminations and purifications immediately wrought the other effects, beginning to elevate her nature to a condition not so far removed from the ultimate supreme end. In addition to this, they caused, in the most pure soul, new sentiments and movements of humility and knowledge of the nothingness of the creature in comparison with the Creator and His blessings. Thus her inflamed heart was incited to many other heroic acts of virtue, like effects are produced in a corresponding degree in other souls, who are to be prepared for the visions of the deity. 6.28 Our curtailed insight might well hold that the foregoing preparations are sufficient for being admitted to the beatific vision, but they are not still another quality is wanting, a divine emanation or light, the light of glory. This new cleansing, though it is similar in nature to those already spoken of, is altogether different from them in its effects for it raises the soul to a very high and serene state, wherein greatest tranquility and enjoys the sweetest peace, which is not felt in connection with the first mentioned purifications. For in those the pain and bitterness of sin is still felt. If the soul was guilty of any, and if not, then there remains still the earthly weight of our lower nature. These effects are not compatible with the close approach and assimilation to the supreme blessedness. It seems to me that the first purification served to mortify, and that which I am now referring to serves to revivify and heal nature. God proceeds in these things like the painter who first delineates the image, then applies the ground colors, and at last puts on the finishing touches, so the picture comes to light well defined. 6.29 Over and above all these purifications, preparations, and their admirable effects, God adds still a last one, which is the light of glory by which the soul raises itself to attain and enjoy the beatific vision of God. In this light, the Godhead manifests itself, for without this light God cannot be seen by any creature. Since the natural powers of the creature cannot attain to this light, in these preparations, therefore, it is impossible to see God by the natural faculties alone, for all this far exceeds the forces of nature. 6.30 With all this beauty and adornment, the spouse of the Holy Ghost, the daughter of the Father, and the mother of the Son, was furnished for her entrance into the chamber of divinity, in order to enjoy from time to time the beatific vision and intuitive fruition. And as these favors were given to her according to the measure of her dignity and grace, therefore it is possible to encompass the godlike proportions of her enlightenment by the reasoning powers or the thoughts of a creature, and much less of an ignorant woman." 
Still less can the joys of her soul be estimated or calculated. When it was thus exalted above all, that is most supreme in the highest seraphim and saints. If, in regard to all the just, even the lowest of those who enjoy God, it is infallibly true that neither eye has seen nor ear heard, nor mind conceived what God has prepared for his elect. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What must be the enjoyment of the greater saints? And if the same apostle who says this confesses that he cannot repeat what he had heard, 2 Corinthians 12.4, what shall we in our narrow limitation of powers be able to say of the saint of the saints of the mother of him, who is the glory of the saints? Next to the soul of her most holy son, who is man and true God, she was the one who knew and saw the greatest mysteries and sacraments, and those infinite and hidden immensities of the divine. To her, more than to all the blessed in their entirety, were thrown open the infinite treasures, the expanding vastness of that inaccessible being, unlimited by any beginning or end. She, as the city of God, was inundated by the ecstatic torrents of the supreme being, overwhelming her with the impetuous waves of wisdom and grace, spiritualizing and impregnating her with the spirit of divinity. This concludes our reading today for day 72. We've been reading from book 2, chapter 14, paragraphs 623 through 630. Well, today in our reading about these visions that Mary enjoyed during her life, her clear vision of the divinity, we learn that, again, remember that this is volume 1, the conception, as it's called, And so, in virtue of her immaculate conception of being without sin, she's able to have this clear vision of God in her life. And so, what does that mean for us sinners? Well, it means that in order for us to see God, we will have to be purified of all our sin. And that's what we believe about purgatory, that it's a place in which we are purified so that we can see God. Some of these lines just really strike to the heart. All traces of sin and much more of actual sin contaminate and infect the soul. Again, I know we talked about this several weeks ago now, but we think about just the very tiny sins. I remember there was an author, Elizabeth Scalia, who wrote a book that the small sins matter. We shouldn't just focus on the big sins. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen something. But rather, we need to focus on the very small things of our life, that we begin to purify our life. And that's why we've talked about virtue. The virtues help us as we begin to purge and purify the different vices of our life. We hear again, For in those the pain and the bitterness of sin is still felt, If the soul was guilty of any, and if not then, there remains still the earthly weight of our lower nature. So in our life, our soul is weighed down by our sins. We are cleansed by confession, and we are given another chance after every confession we make. We want to have the weight of sin lifted from us. I know for myself, if I don't go to confession for a few weeks— I typically go about every two weeks. I'm very fortunate. I live close to a Marian apparition shrine, and so I'm able to go to confession there. And as a priest, knowing other priests, I can go to confession quite readily if I want. But I notice in my life that if I don't go to confession every two weeks or thereabout, that you begin to feel the weight of sin. It begins to affect your mental health. It begins to affect 
other aspects of your life. And so we need to have those sins of our life lifted. That's why we go to the sacrament of reconciliation. We know that Mary was able to see God all throughout her life because she was pure, because she was immaculate. And so let us strive in this life to detach ourselves from sin so that one day we too, purified of our sin, might be able to see God. I'm Father Edward Looting, and throughout the year I'm reading and reflecting on the mystical city of God. I'm so happy that you joined me today, and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. May God bless you, and Mary pray for you.